So many projections. That part is right. So I think maybe what we'll try to do is um, have um, Nicholas speak and then Billy speak and then have a little bit of break and then have some conversation. Um, uh, let's see how that goes. Um, and, you know, unless there's a popular revolt. So Nicholas, who teaches in the philosophy department here, is going to be um, talking about uh, uh, this the tiny scrap of a face. So what I thought, especially since um, with the time that I can also compress a bit and sort okay. of present some of these ideas, maybe I'll just say sort of um, some of the ideas that I'm interested in presenting and sort of placing on the table and discussing. Um, speak up just a little Okay, sure. The first thing that uh, struck me and I wanted to sort of investigate a bit more sort of on my own and now I can do this here is um, the great variety of descriptions of faces in post and, um, and then I realized that um, the face is um, sort of a kind of trope or a point of localization where a lot of these broader Proustian problems about the relationship between the imagination and perception, the problem of desire and the other, um, the desire of the other desires, et cetera, it, which plays itself out. It's almost a kind of stage. So what I'd like to do um, today in some comments is to um, start exploring, if you wish, sort of the geography of the face in um, Proust and to use it as a way to say a few things or make a few suggestions about the Proustian imaginary. And um, in connection to that, to say something about one of the most sort of um, pervasive <coughs> problems in Proust, and that's the nature of the self and the attempt to constitute the self as a unity through its multiplicity of experiences, et cetera. And the way in which I sort of conceived of these comments was to anchor the discussion in um, two very specific scenes that I'll look at, one at the sort of beginning of my comments, one at the end, and then bridge these two scenes with a set of comments on the imaginary in Proust um, and contrast it a bit with the Sartrean conception of the imaginary to sort of introduce some more sort of general features and problems and then to look at um, a debate um, in the interpretation of Proust about whether Proust provides any solutions for the constitution of the self as a unity um, in, in his uh, writing and then end by going to a particular scene where I'll try to suggest that there is a kind of Proustian solution um, to this and then we'll end with some sort of further remarks that might sort of open up a bit more the discussion. So that's sort of the plan that I had um, this afternoon. Now it's often been remarked um, and that perhaps with the exception of Marcel's mother and grandmother, um, all individuals, so all persons uh, in the recherche only attain meaning and significance to the degree of being experienced as more than what they initially appear to do. Uh, and to be, and this movement and sense, if you wish, beyond their initial appearance is often characterized by Proust as the level or the depth to which the person is a mystery or a secret, um, that there's something of significance to be possessed. And this promise of depth, that it's not just a surface, the other is not just a surface, but a kind of depth, um, is both a promise and an aspiration of in which locating or possessing the person, without which the person is either simply incomprehensible, as Proust says, or boring, or one is completely indifferent. Um, and this is, we have really from the very first encounter with Marcel, as you remember, in Combray, 
where the world that's surrounding him is really a world of different surfaces in which he catches momentarily or glimpses sort of opaque reflections of some kind of depth or mystery, um, and which is also characterized by Proust often in an interplay of proximity and distance. And this, I think, is exemplified in the magic lantern that he has in the bedroom. You'll remember that there's this one um, description of projecting the image or the face of one of the characters in this fairy tale, Golo, on the doorknob uh, of his door. And there, I think, you can already <coughs> see the basic schema of the relationship with the, the imagination and perception and constituting some sort of person of significance, something fascinating. Because Golo, the image of Golo is projected onto the doorknob, so the doorknob is a surface that's smooth, that has no features. And that projection of Golo on the doorknob um, allows um, Proust already introduce the basic schema of the recherche, which is how is it that um, one can pursue something which is other or different than me, um, but pursue it in such a way that it reflects something that I project on it. So precisely when you look at the image of Golo on the doorknob, you both see the doorknob and don't see the doorknob, and you both see Golo and you don't see Golo. In a sense, the doorknob presents the bone structure of the face for Golo that's projected on it. So this, I would say, is a kind of basic template or schema that's going to reappear in very different ways, um, in very different variations to the recherche, and it's often been noted that the recherche is this perpetual experience of the anticipation of the encounter with something, whether it's Venice, whether it's a person, whether it's the Vierge in Balbec, through an idealized image. And then the encounter with the specific materiality of that object, and then a certain kind of disappointment. Um, so we could say that the image and the imagination is here um, quite important and introduced in a way that it sort of gives face to our desire. And by giving a face or by giving an identity to our desire, the object that we desire, it also gives it flesh. And by flesh, what I mean not only that it objectifies it and externalizes it, but it gives it something which I think is very important for um, Proust's notion of the imaginary. It gives it a certain determinate sense of being. So it gives it a certain kind of a d density. So we could say that, and I just sort of propose this as a hypothesis, that one of the really distinctive features of the Proustian imaginary is that it transforms something into something more particular, um, something more distinguished, and therefore something more real. In this sense, the imagination, if you wish, renders the other exclusive by distinguishing it, and because it renders the other exclusive by distinguishing it, it renders it unique, and of course that's the sense in which the other is going to be fascinating, a mystery, a secret, in a sense for Proust a person, and that's also why, and this won't be something I'm going to talk about directly today, but jealousy is almost part and parcel of what it is to constitute the other as fascinating, precisely because it makes it unique. Um, Another dimension that we can add to this, and this is just by way of speaking very broadly in general terms, just to introduce some distinctions and some ideas, is that to this dimension of what I would call the interplay of surface and depth, um, so sensation and the imagination, there's the other dimension of intensity, which also takes different forms or sensibility, sexual desire, aesthetic beauty, happiness, satisfaction, etc., such that we can say that the imagination also rematerializes matter into a much more intense form. Um, and it's only on the plane of the imagination that we really experience something like intensity. Um, a final sort of set of distinctions, again, just to sort of lay out some distinctions, 
is that um, connected to all of this is, of course, the whole problem of anxiety and vulnerabilities, which is, if you wish, animated through our imagination. Um, because insofar, and this is something that Dick was talking about earlier, insofar that the real is constituted as a determinant significance, so as in having some sort of determinant meaning through the imagination, and that's what I pursue when I pursue the other, then the very conditions of its fulfillment would be the recognition that, in a sense, it's been constituted through my imagination. And so every projection of the imagination is also a vulnerability or an anxiety vis-a-vis -vis that which I'm pursuing or imagining. Um, and that's the sense in which the imagination is always accomplished, accomplished accompanied, excuse me, by anguish and by a marked sense of inadequacy. And of course, the inadequacy of response is one of the very perennial themes um, in um, Proust. So one could say, and just as a kind of formula, just to sort of summarize a bit what I think would be sort of the anatomy of the imaginary, that um, we only sense the intensity of the real for Proust once we no longer just sense it, but imagine it. And thus only through the imagination is reality rendered to us, a reality rendered as intense as we imagined it, and in this sense possesses meaning and depth. And of course the paradox is that precisely the intensity doesn't belong to the thing as such. Um, and I'll come back to this later because I'm going to try to distinguish this conception of the imaginary from a Sartrean imaginary. It would appear at first sight that it's a very Sartrean idea that the real is something wholly undifferentiated, so what Sartre calls the in itself, and then any process of differentiation requires the projection or the project of my own freedom, um, such that it's only through the projection of myself that difference is introduced into the world, and in this sense then the problem of the imagination is precisely to irrealize reality in order to make it meaningful, but then as soon as I come into contact with the real, it in a sense exposes that meaning as either trivial, so as something to which I'm completely indifferent, or something profoundly disappointing. And I'm going to argue that actually um, Proust has a very different way of inflecting that motion or that dynamic of the imagination. Um, so. Um, that's sort of the way in which I think the imagination just generally operates in, in Proust. And what I'd like to do is sort of test some of these ideas by looking at a very specific figure that reappears, and that's the figure of the face. Um, so to think about whether Proust's descriptions of the face serve as a kind of staging area in which this notion of the imaginary gets played out. And of course, that's not to suggest that it's not being played out in other tropes, if you wish, in the recherche, but uh, I wanted to look specifically at the face for a, a reason that will become apparent a bit later, um, but which I can sort of already sort of telegraph. But I think that in Proust there's this very interesting distinction between descriptions of the face in which it's always the problem of misrecognition and trying to imagine what the other person is or making them fascinating, um, which is always disappointed when I actually see them, and then descriptions of clothing and the metaphor of clothing. And, and I'm going to argue that the, the sort of um, analogy that Pus is going to look to or to formulate in order to, um, if you wish, articulate what we might call a successful creative notion of the imagination that in, eventually is going to be realized through the act of writing itself is um, the analogies with clothing. 
and uh, bodies that have movement and clothing and not the analysis of a face. And you can see that why the face is always something that's not clothed. It's always something that in a sense is naked and therefore has to be constituted in such a way. And I'll sort of come back to this at the end of the paper. But that's another set of distinctions I'm interested in is the descriptions of faces as opposed to descriptions of clothing. Um, okay, so to sort of make this whole discussion a bit more concrete after this very general, um, perhaps, perhaps too generic, set of distinctions, I want to look at one scene which I think is really a scene where all of these elements start to come together very clearly. And that's the scene um, when Marcel is first introduced to saint Lou's mistress. Um, and just sort of describe this scene in order to uh, show that in this scene, this problematic of the face is used in order to give articulation to the sense in which the imagination constitutes the other and then the encounter with the other is the disappointment. Um, so there's always this tension between the face that I see, the face that I imagine. Um, and to do so in a way where by looking at this then I can set up then the, the, the contrasting discussion with Sartre. Now, let me just remind you a bit of the scene because I won't presuppose that everyone is familiar or has it sort of uh, at their hands. Um, as you recall, uh, Marcel first meets Saint-Lou in Balbec and then postpones visiting him at the military barracks in Doncières, finally goes and visits him uh, and comes to hear of Saint-Lou's mistress. Um, and Saint-Lou always speaks of the mistress as an object of, you know, a very beautiful woman, an object that he loves. He calls her an astral and Vedic being. Um, and it's not until uh, Saint-Lou comes to Paris to meet Marcel and they decide to go into the suburbs um, that Marcel first actually sees and comes to encounter um, this mistress of which he's heard so much uh, about. And this scene is a very important scene because on the one hand, as you'll recall, there is an image that Marcel has of the mistress and that image is precisely the image as the desirable object of Saint-Lou. Uh, as, and Saint-Lou keeps telling Marcel that she's very sophisticated, she's very intelligent, um, almost suggesting that she comes from the upper aristocracy as he himself does, uh, that he would sort of sacrifice everything for her. You'll remember that he spent exorbitant amount of money to buy her this jewelry, this necklace. Um, so he's willing to sacrifice and give everything to her for this object of veneration, almost this sacred sort of object. Um, he calls her, quote, a superior essence to the rest of the world. And the scene is, is partly comic and partly tragic, like so many things in, in Proust. And it's structured in terms of a rhythm, a very interesting rhythm, between, on the one hand, the growing realization of who this mistress is, so a certain recognition, um, which will involve a fundamental misrecognition, as I'll argue on both parties, and then an appreciation of natural beauty. So the scene sort of moves back and forth because they're walking outside, um, and Proust, as he's sort of about to meet her, he, she shows up. He's also looking around at the surroundings, and there's a kind of reflection, a kind of reverie on natural beauty. Now, this begins right at the beginning of the scene when Robert and Marcel are walking to Rachel's house, and Marcel observes the newly blooming pear trees and cherry trees, and his attention is distracted. And Robert says something, um, he says sort of playfully, well, why don't you stay here and play the part of the poet, so immerse yourself in this reverie of nature, and I'm going to go get my mistress. Um, so. He then gets his mistress, and as he sort of is coming back to Marcel with the mistress, um, Marcel realizes that he's actually seen this woman before. 
and he realizes that this woman um, that is the mistress of Robert is actually a prostitute that he had met a while back in a brothel. Uh, and at that time, he had given her a name uh, based on an opera from Alevi called Rachel When From the Lord. So there's this recognition, um, which I just want to sort of quote a bit from the passage, that on the one hand, he recognizes that this woman is actually a prostitute, um, a prostitute that he knows from his experience in a brothel, and that this, in a sense, is the demystification of Robert's own, if you wish, constitution or perception of uh, Rachel. And what I want to argue is that this whole scene isn't simply the lesson that the demystification of one perception, so showing it to be imaginary, is always in contrast to a perception that contacts the real, but that Marcel's own perception of Rachel is also something of the imaginary. So I'm going to argue that this scene is not simply a one-sided demystification. Both if you wish, imagine Rachel in some way. Um, and so as he sort of realizes this, this horror, he of course doesn't want to sort of tell this to his friend Robert, um, and he starts to describe how he actually sees her. Um, and he remembers seeing her in um, the brothel. And I'll just remind you, that scene is earlier in the novel when his friend Bloch says, look, you know, happiness is possible. Women will sleep with you. And here's sort of the easy way to do it. Of course, I'm giving you a sort of um, watered-down version of the story. Um, you know, let's go to the brothel. And you can possess women. You can possess desire. And so Bloch says, OK, I'm going to take you to the brothel. They go to this brothel, and there's all various kind of women there. Um, and there's one woman in particular that uh, Marcel sees and describes in very material terms. So he notes how her face are like lines that have been inscribed. It's almost a kind of mineralogical description of the face, so without any kind of idealization. He also notes that the hair is almost like it was drawn and engraved. And very importantly, and this is something I won't discuss in, in my comments, but we can come back to it, is that she's Jewish. So there's also a very complicated reflection on the nature of the identity of Judaism um, and being Jewish. And that this um, one prostitute is the prostitute that he doesn't approach, but he just observes. And he observes her sort of um, being available for um, other men. So he, it's an interesting scene because it's a kind of voyeuristic scene where he sees her. Um, he never actually meets her. And then he returns to the brothel on numerous occasions and has this running joke, which the madame of the brothel doesn't really get, that he's given her the name of Rachel when from the Lord. And every time he comes, he always wants to observe her as she's telling the um, the, the headmistress of the brothel that, you know, whenever you need me, just let me know. And, you know, if there's a customer, I'll show up. And in the scene where Marcel is with Robert and realizes that this mistress is actually uh, the prostitute, he describes his perception of her by um, using metaphors of um, her body as a mechanical body, as a clockwork toy, as a pantomime. Uh, someone who, as he says, plays her role. And he has this wonderful metaphor of a patient who goes to the doctor and knows exactly what the ritual is, takes off the clothing without ever being asked. So the idea is that Rachel is not even a person. She's just simply a function. And her function is to be a prostitute. Um, and in this realization, the contrast between his perception of Rachel and the perception of um, 
Saint-Loup, he, he has this realization from which I took the title of uh, my comments, and I just want to read it to you because it's a very important moment where there's a realization about the power of the imagination. Um, so the, the narrator of Marcel recounts, quote, I realized how much a human imagination can put behind a tiny scrap of face, such as this woman's. And it's interesting that he calls her this woman's. Um, if it is the imagination that has been first to know it, and conversely, into what miserable, worthless material elements, something which was once the target of countless dreams might be decomposed, if on the contrary, it had been perceived in a quite different manner by the most coarse sort of acquaintance. Um, end of quote. So in that realization, there's not only the realization of, uh, he says, the way in which the imagination can put so much behind the tiny scrap of a face, in a sense constitute the face as a face, as having a certain depth, but also a realization of the, if you wish, de demystification of the imagination when it's confronted with a perception of the pure material elements of that object. So what he calls here the worthless material elements that decomposes it, the most coarse sort of acquaintance. And of course, like many things in Proust, that has to be read on two levels. One is the coarseness and materiality of this woman is that she's a prostitute, so she's merely body, not even a body of desire. She's a kind of toy. And it has a meaning on another level that the imagination always is in conflict with the materiality of its basis. So in attempt, the attempt to realize matter always is resisted by materiality itself. Um, and we could spend more time looking at this distinction between the person and the puppet, et cetera, matter and spirit, et cetera. Now, at this point, it would seem that the lesson to be learned is um, that every sort of imaginary construct can be demystified simply by opposing it to a perception of the real. And I think that what happens in the rest of this scene is that, Mas, uh, that Proust is then going to, if you wish, disabuse us of this conclusion by showing that Marcel himself is perceiving her through the imaginary. Um, and this, I think, um, happens with a very subtle interplay of a kind of exchange between the description of this realization of the face as being the face of the prostitute as seen from Marcel's point of view and his distraction of looking to nature and the way in which he, Proust is going to describe um, nature. Before I look at that, let me just make one more citation from this passage. Again, it's sort of the lesson that he learns. Um, Marcel, or the narrator, says that, quote, undoubtedly both, both of them saw the same thin and narrow face. And again, it's very important that it's thin and narrow, so it's just a surface. It really, almost like the doorknob in the, in, in the bedroom, it's just a surface on which an imaginary is projected or something is constituted as having a depth a kind of person. Um, he says, undoubtedly both of them saw the, f the same thin and narrow face, but the two opposite paths, so my perception and the other's perception, could never converge and we would never see the same face. Um, so you have this interesting idea that even though what underlies both perceptions, or let's say both um, approaches as he call it, is the same face, no one ever sees the same face as the other. Um, as he says, quote, her face could only appear to him, to Robert, only through the dream world he had created. And then he has this very nice passage, which I just want to quote a bit in full. He says, the, quote, the immobility of that thin face, and I want to pay attention to the metaphors, like a thin sheet of paper subjected to the colossal pressure of two atmospheres, 
and I'll just interrupt this, uh, fits nicely to the quote that was said earlier of the incandescent atmosphere of consciousness. So reality as like this thin sheet of surface and consciousness is this colossal pressure, but it's an atmospheric pressure. So it really has, it has a very different kind of density. Um, so as he says, quote, the immobility of that thin face, like a thin sheet of paper, subjected to the colossal pressure of two atmospheres, seemed to me to be held in balance by two infinities, which converged on her without meeting, for she held them apart. And indeed, as looked at her, Robert and I, neither of us saw her from the same side of the mystery." Um, end of quote. Um, now, what I want to argue here, and I won't go into the great detail, partly for time, is that um, Ultimately, what this passage shows us is that uh, both Marcel and Robert constitute Rachel as a mystery, but as two different kinds of mysteries. So it's not that Marcel sees her as, as the real, which demystifies the mystification, if you wish, of Robert, but his own perception is something which is equally succumbs to a kind of mystification. And I think that the way in which um, Proust almost brilliantly does this is by projecting his perception or sublimating his perception of Rachel onto his perception of nature, uh, the nature around. So if you wish the atmosphere or the environment, because right at that moment where Marcel realizes to his, this horror that this woman is a prostitute, Robert notices that there's something wrong with Marcel. So Marcel's own face betrays the realization. Um, and then Marcel says that Robert asks him, is something wrong? And so rather than say, you know, you're going out with a hoe or something like that, he then says, oh no, I'm so thunderstruck by the beauty of the environment. So he pretends that really what he's realizing and sort of being absorbed to is the beauty of the environment and s claims to simply be distracted. And so he sort of lies to some degree to Robert by saying, in a sense, misrepresenting what the realization is. However, what I want to suggest is that Marcel, in a sense, deceives himself because when he describes this beauty of the nature that surrounds him, um, there are two kinds of metaphors that are quite important. One is that he starts to describe the trees in their beauty as angels um, and as lilacs. And the other is that he makes a connection with the um, day on which they're meeting, which is um, a, a feast or a celebration of Mary Magdalena. So he makes the association with perhaps the most important prostitute in, let's call it the biblical tradition, the prostitute who becomes saint, which is Mary Magdalena, and um, talks about how the beauty of um, the nature and of the trees uh, reminds him of the garden and the holiday celebrating Mary Magdalena. And then he talks about that very important scene from the Gospel of St. John, where Mary Magdalena is in the garden. The gardener appears, and she doesn't realize that it's Jesus. And then the moment that she's about to realize that it's Jesus, as is portrayed in many great paintings, perhaps the greatest is by Titian, she wants to touch Jesus, and Jesus says, do not touch me. Uh, so it's the Noli Me Tangere painting, genre in the Renaissance. So I think what Proust is doing is that he's sort of telling us that um, Marcel, in a sense, imagines or constitutes Rachel as the mystery of Mary Magdalena, which is then projected or sublimated into his description of natural beauty. 
And as you know, that this is a very sort of uh, typical uh, move in Proust is always to, if you wish, conflate the description of the person with the nature in which that person is situated. So think of Albertine and Balbec with the sea. Um, so what I'd like to sort of uh, here to sort of bring it to a point is that um, two things. One is that what this scene shows us is that there is no strict opposition between the imagination and the real in this scene, but between two different forms of imaginings. Uh, Rachel is a mystery, but in two very different ways. So it's not a, simply a demystification. It really is the inevitability of the imagination in order to constitute a person uh, or some person as some kind of mystery. The second thing I'd like to sort of extract from this is what we might call... Um, I guess I'll pick up the, 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 the metaphor introduced earlier, uh, two axes, if you wish, uh, to understand the faciality in Proust. And uh, actually Deleuze, I think, has a very nice discussion of faciality in uh, Thousand Plateaus, where he says that the faciality is constituted by what he calls two axes of, on the one hand, signification um, and subjectification. And he calls this the two systems of the white wall and the black hole. And what he means by that, I think it re you can really see in this scene in, in Proust, that the face is on the one hand, as Proust says, a thin sheet of paper in which there are signs that are being written and so I have to decode it. So this is the sense in which the face is constituted as an axe of signification or a white wall, hieroglyphics, um, as you ended sort of your paper. Um, and on the other hand, as a black hole. So as a system in which I can continually project my desire and my imagination, but the face is the whole of subjectification uh, in the sense that its subjectivity is a kind of whole of desire. Uh, I can sort of infinitely project my dreams into that depth because the depth itself is what my imagination constitutes. It reminds me of a very beautiful line that Proust has towards the end where he says that when we love another, it's always that we dream of the other. You know, our love of the other is to constitute them as a dream and sort of paraphrasing Freud, we might say that the face is the navel of the dreams of the other. Right? Um, it sort of, sort of it, you know, brings us to a kind of origin that we can never return to and we can never grasp. So this I would suggest, and I won't go through more examples of the face, but there's this very interesting sense in which post the face is both a text to be deciphered as well as this whole or space for the projection of the imagination. And then there is um, a whole variety of, if you wish, disjointed aspects or disjointments that can happen. Sometimes the face betrays what it tries to hide. So think, for example, the great scene where Le Grandin is lying, um, and, but his face betrays the lie that he's giving, um, is a scene where, again, you have a disjunction of the system, I guess Deleuze would call it the system of signification, the, the white surface, the, the, the text that I'm deciphering, and the, the mask, the person that's presenting itself. So in the Le Grandin, the system of signification is giving a sign that betrays the personification of the self. And of course, there are any number of varieties in which that can happen. Um, now, I'd just like to say in general that, uh, and this is something that would be interesting to do, in which I would like to do, is to go through and analyze all the, the, the descriptions of the face in Proust according to this general matrix. Um, and here, the face, as you know, is a very sort of complex figure in Proust because it's not simply looking at faces, but it's all also realizing that I'm being looked at by a face. 
And again, just to connect to what you mentioned earlier, the Sartrean idea of the look at the gaze, you'll remember when Chalus, when Marcel first meets Chalus in Tansoville, where she's Gilbert, he describes it as all of a sudden he feels a gaze on him, and that's the gaze of Chalus who's sort of looking at this young boy. That's repeated again at the hotel in Balbec, where he sees a man like a dandy, and he just describes it as a gaze, but that gaze has a point of origin that is almost beyond the world, and of course that's going to be the mystery of Chalus that's um, introduced. So there's a kind of special mechanism of the face not only the face as I see it, but as I'm being seen by a face. Um, I would also add that sometimes Proust describes the full description of the clothed individual as a face. Um, so to look at the scene in Balbec, when Chalus is looking, so Marcel sees this man, doesn't know that it's Chalus, and there's this description of clothing, and he describes very finely that he's wearing this tweed, English tweed, so he's giving all the signs that it's a dandy, and then he has, says he has this one little red mark on his uh, buttonhole, and that's, of course, the stain or the mark that betrays his homosexuality. So there's a sense in which the mask of the whole clothing is already betraying the secret of the person. Um, I'd like to say one more thing on this, again, about how I th rich I think the theme of the face is. Of course, we know that the recherche ends with the famous and very brilliant, um, uh, I think they call it the, the, ma the mask ball in English, right? Bal de tête at the end at the Gaumont's party, which is all about faces and the misrecognition of faces. And I'll end my comments by looking at how Rachel appears in that scene, another sense of misrecognition. There what's very brilliant is the way in which faces become so materialized, almost petrified through age, that it's not the tension with the imagination as an idealization, but the tension with the memory of that person in the past. So the, if you wish, the relationship between the imaginary and the real is fully temporalized between the present and the past. And that's where then he says, uh, Proust, that it's I'm, as if I'm looking at insects, right? These people are now insects, which is the last sort of possibility of actually having a face that still looks kind of like a face. It's almost on the border of the inhuman, that they're all insects going around. Um, and if, and this is almost sort of the reversal of the aristocratic world of the sea gods and the opera and the masks of the gods, right? That it begins with the aristocracy as gods and personas when he first goes to see La Belma and he looks at all the, you know, the aristocracy and how they're giving each other bonbons and doesn't understand why. Um, so we go from the aristocratic world of sea gods to a natural history museum of aristocracy as insects. That's the full arc and I think it all moves through the face. So now let me just say a few things just very briefly about why sort of um, in more philosophical terms, if you wish, this is interesting because it gives a very different notion of the imaginary than we have in Sartre. Um, let me just say very briefly that initially it seems to be a very Sartrean notion of the imaginary. Remember that Sartre's notion of the imaginary is that the imaginary is, as Sartre calls, it performs a double negation. So when I look at Odette's face, for example, and uh, remember how Swan sees her face as a Botticelli painting. Then there is, from a Sartrean point of view, two forms of negation. On the one hand, I immunize myself or neutralize the actual physicality of that face, so I don't see it for what it is. I don't see her imperfections in the face. I don't see that she's really ugly, etc. Instead, what I see is a beautiful face, and remember that for Sartre, the image is not a thing but an activity. So it's a way in which I comport myself to the real. Um, so there's the 
derealization of matter, and there's the irrealization of myself because I have to produce something which is an imaginary and not real, which is only sustained through my desire for it. So this is what Sartre calls the double negation or the double negativity of uh, the imaginary. But one way in which I think, um, and this would be my suggestion, Proust does not have a Sartrean imagine, uh, 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 imagined notion of the imaginary in that in um, Sartre, the imaginary is first and foremost the attempt to magically conjure, and this is the language that Sartre says, that the imagination is magic. Uh, it's the incantation, the casting of a spell on the world such that its materiality now seems to have a very different kind of density. Um, for Sartre, the imagination is always an irrealization that tries to make something present that is by definition absent. So Pierre is not in the room, and precisely because Pierre is not in the room, I irrealize Pierre in, in order to make him sort of present. But what I would like to suggest um, is that in Proust, the imagination isn't simply trying to make something present which is absent. It's actually trying to also make something present absent itself. So it's actually taking something that it's present and making it absent in the very specific Proustian way that it's taking something that has no significance, so its presence as <coughs> such has no significance, and it tries to give it significance by giving it a depth which means that, in a sense, it has to negate its pure presence. It has to qualify it or introduce qualification. And as a footnote, I would just mention that in this regard, I think Proust has a notion of the imaginary, which is much closer to Bergson, because in Bergson, the imagination, which is also memory, is the way in which qualitative differentiation is introduced into matter. So matter itself has no differentiation. Matter only becomes differentiated through memoir hence matter and memory. So it's not the making present of something absent, it's the making absent of something present such, such that that thing now has meaning, uh, such that it has intensity. Uh, as Bergson would say, such that it has vitality, such that it actually has a life. Now at this point, um, I'd like to introduce sort of one more, if you wish, um, more philosophical formulation of a problem before I sort of end my comments by looking at a last scene um, in the Recherche. And that's to sort of open up this discussion to how this conception of the imaginary and, and it's sort of almost, um, you know, I guess negative dialectic with the real because it's always perpetually failing to synthesize and the discussion of the face might, I think, be promising to look at a debate about the nature of the self in Proust and, and a certain proposal about how Proust may have resolved this. Um, it's clear that if it's the case that the other is always constituted through some imaginary sense of the other as mysterious as a secret that I, in a sense, desire um, in order also to sort of understand and see my own singularity as a desiring being. And if everyone constitutes the other according to their own projects of the imaginary, then one interesting question is, of course, whether there can ever be a unitary and genuine appreciation of another, or whether it's always bound to some kind of failure. Um, and um, clearly in Proust, there's this sense that the self is a multiplicity of selves. He continually describes the self as diachronically distributed, not only in time, but also synchronically distributed insofar that my will and my intelligence and my sensibility are never 
um, if you wish, orchestrated. So in, in, in sort of, you might say, in a very anti-Kantian way, the imagination does not guarantee the unity of the function of the different faculties, sensibility, understanding, and reason. The imagination is responsible for the perpetual deregulation of the unity of the faculties. Um, now, one proposal, and, and I'll just mention this, and, uh, um, is by recently by um, Joshua Landy in a book called Philosophis, Philos, Philos, Philosophy as Fiction, um, which is a book on Proust, where he argues that on the one hand, you have this radical sense of the plurality and fragmentation of the self in Proust, but that on the other hand, that there is a solution that Proust proposes, and this solution to how to understand the unity of the multiplicity of the self is directly related to how Proust will envision the nature of an artwork. Um, and what Landy proposes is that the Proustian solution to his own problem is that the way in which we can unify the self in a kind of non-illusionary way from its multiplicity is through what he calls a, quote, regulative fiction so the idea of creating a fictional character is going to be important. Um, a regulative fiction which allows us then to unify the very different sort of persons under a coherent narrative. So he appeals to a kind of narrative conception of the self through a regulative fiction. I would say it's almost a kind of Kantian idea of a regulative ideal. So it's an ideal which is, doesn't constitute the self, but it regulates the synthesis of the multiplicity of the self, and this ideal can never itself be made a, 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 an intuition. So I can never subsume it to an intuition, i.e. it can never be synthesized with a concept and intuition. It really is an idea. So it, it both is a limiting concept and an organizing concept. And for this argument, Landy makes this suggestion. He looks at a moment in the um, Recherche where Marcel is looking at Robert and imagines Robert as a painting. Quote, this is the section that he says um, from the Recherche. Marcel's, Landy says this, quote, the only manner in which Marcel can picture the motley acts, aspects, and attitudes of Robert as part of a unified system is by imagining um, that they all serve a single purpose as they would ideally if they were the protagonist of a story or the subject of a portrait. End of quote. This is Landy. So for Landy, he thinks that um, on the one hand, Marcel realizes that Robert's life holds no real consistency. He's duplicitous about his sexuality. He has affairs uh, with, uh, with Gilbert, etc. Um, but nonetheless, it's only through what Landy calls fictional autobiography that, quote, Marcel can turn existence into a work of art and to bring all selves and subselves into alignment and produce what might be called a total self, end of quote. And Landy will see this as the very, if you wish, structure of the recherche itself, what um, Marcel realizes in the illumination in the library of, of, of Guermantes. Now, what I would like to argue is that this is actually an incorrect view. So I'd like to say that it's incorrect and then propose a different kind of Proustian solution. I think it's incorrect for two views. One is, um, if you look closely at that passage that um, Landy quotes from, Marcel says, I reproached myself for viewing it this way. So he's already distancing himself from this idea that I see Robert as a painting, specifically as a Holbein painting. Second of all, we know that um, 
Swan looks at Odette and sees her as a painting, namely as the Botticelli. So I would say that just sort of texturally, it's very complicated whether in that passage, that's a, that's a sort of a conception of the unification of the self that's analogous to a certain notion of the artwork that's being endorsed by Proust. Um, and of course, we could have a much extent, more extended conversation about the function of painting as both a model for the inadequacy of the imagination, but also as a model for the success of the artwork, because Elstir is the key painter figure who does propose, in, in Marcel's thinking, a kind of rudiments to think about the nature of the artwork. As you recall, at the end, in, um, Post often makes the comparison of Elstir has discovered a method of painting which is very closer, can be sort of taken as inspiration for the craft of novel itself. Um, but I think that Landy thinks of that passage, that passage is clearly not Elstir as a painter, it really is a notion of painting as a kind of deceptive notion of the imaginary. The second sort of, I think, more convincing argument is by actually looking at a passage where Robert appears in the novel, where I would claim this is where Marcel recognizes what I'll call the singular essence of Robert. So something about the essence or the identity of Robert is revealed to him, and it's not at all revealed to him in any way that could be described as imagining Robert as a fictional person in the model of a painting or um, a kind of artwork. And the scene that I'm thinking about, and this is how I'll close my comments, is at the end of the Recherche in Le Temps Retrouvé, when um, during the war, during the First World War, when Marcel gets lost in Paris and comes upon the hotel where eventually he's going to enter and see that it's the hotel owned by the Baron de Charlu and where there's going to be the famous sadomasochistic scene. Um, and as he's standing outside of this hotel that he's accidentally found, so again, it's the sense of the accident, um, he sees the door open and all the shutters are closed, and he knows that inside it's fully illuminated and full of mysterious activities. He also says that this is wartime, and he's wondering why anyone has lights on. Um, and then he says, quote, um, as he was standing, as he says, 15 meters away, quote, my curiosity was also aroused when some 15 meters away from me, that is to say, too far away from me to be able in the profound darkness to make it to make it out who it was, I saw an officer hurriedly leaving it. Something about him struck me all the same, and this I think is very important. It was not his face, which I did not see, nor his uniform, which was concealed under a heavy gray coat, but the extraordinary disproportion, so you have multiplicity and fragmentation, between the number of different points through which his body passed and the small number of seconds it took for him to effect this exit, which looked like an attempted dash for safety on the part of somebody under siege. So that I was reminded, and in French it's pensé, I thought, so not reminded, in sense of memory. So I was reminded, even if I did not actually recognize him, I will not say exactly of the frame or the slenderness or of the gait or the speed of Saint Lou, but of the sort of ubiquity which was so peculiar to him. So here what's very important is that Marcel, and, and this is something that I'd be interested to talk about in, in light of um, Dick's paper, it's not a structure of involuntary memory because it's not as if he sees him and he remembers, aha, this is how Saint Lou looks like because he says very specifically, I didn't see the face, I didn't see the uniform, and it's not 
the frame, the slenderness, the gait. So he's negating any trait, any, and in French it's, I did not recognize him formellement. So there was no form that I recognized. But instead, I, I, I was struck, so it's an impression, of an ubiquity, so a kind of presence, a pervasive presence, which is nonetheless special and peculiar to him. Um, and in French it's l'espèce, so sort is espèce, so a species, almost like a species nature, which is so individualizing that it defines his singular essence. So it's so peculiar to him is spécial in French. So it's this sense of the essence of the totality of the person is given to me in a perception, which is really an impression, and this impression is not imagined, but it's also not perceived. Um, now, I think what's significant here and is that it's not an involuntary memory because the next paragraph starts by saying, at that moment I had an involuntary memory, and it was about the possibility or the rumor that Saint-Lou was a spy. So he clearly is saying that I'm having a different experience, which is an involuntary memory, which is not directly being connected with what I see here. So I think what he's telling us is this is not an involuntary memory, but it's revealing to me the truth of the singularity uh, uh, of Saint-Lou. Um, now, I'll just end with two more comments, and then I'll sort of conclude. I think that this scene is, 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 is very, in one sense, moving because you realize later that I would argue that this is a premonition of the death of Saint-Lou. It's precisely the total absence of Saint-Lou. In that moment, I see him for who he is. Um, as you know, uh, he goes into the hotel and he finds the Croix de Guerre of Saint-Lou, the medal that he's left in the brothel. Um, and, and again, it's the sense of this individualizing fragment, this piece which contains the whole. Um, and it's almost a piece of materiality which cannot be subsumed into a totality, yet which expresses it. Um, so I guess if you were Sartre, you would say it's a non-totalizable totalization, as Sartre would say. Um, so he discovers the Croix de Guerre, but he doesn't know who, ha you know, he wonders who would have left the Croix de Guerre, and it's only later when he goes home and his trusty Françoise says that Saint-Louis is here looking for his lost medal, that he realizes that lost medal is Saint-Louis' medal. Now it's a few days later that then, as he's about to leave Paris, he receives the terrible news that Saint-Louis has been killed in combat. And I just want to read this and then sort of end my comments with it because I think this passage is really a kind of elegy and it's a kind of process of mourning. Um, and it's one of really the rare moments where you could say that there really is a kind of constitution of a feeling of love for another person precisely in mourning of their death. Um, so he hears the news of Saint-Louis' death. And I think it really is one of the most moving scenes in the Recherche because, as I said, it's an elegy of mourning. And it, the news arrives just as Marcel was about to leave Paris. He decides to shut himself into his room. And, of course, the room, the bedroom, is a very important place for, for, for Marcel. Um, thinking and remembering, mourning. Um, and he starts to give almost a kind of speech, almost, almost like a kind of classical funeral ode where he starts to talk about the special being that Robert was. And he says that, you know, the special being that he first seemed to me when I went to Balbec, he talks about him seeing him in the white woolen suit. Um, and there's a kind of evocation of Robert's generosity and devotion, which he thinks is exemplified in his death by, as he says, last of all, by going forward to attach a trench. Um, and then he says that... Um, Quote, he 
remembers the faces of uh, Saint Lou, and he says, quote, and the face that I already seen him so seldom in such diverse settings, in such different circumstances, and at such long intervals, in that hall in Baalbek, in the cafe at Rivebel, in the Calvary barracks, all this meant that I had a sharper, more vivid picture of his life, a clearer sense of grief at his death. And I think that what he's doing here is that Mas uh, Post is showing us that the density of the various faces that he's seen and memories are united the through the clear sense of the grief at his death, which was revealed to him as a premonition when he recognized him without recognizing in the pure absence of him fleeting away. So it unites the two aspects that are elusive for Proust. On the one hand, to tell the story of a life that shows the complexity of all the texture as a, um, as a kind of fabric, as a as kind of totality, but that totality is always producing an impression, so something that's absolutely singular. Um, and here, I'd just like to end with a quote from the end, and I'll sort of cut out some things I was going to talk about, about the Bal de Masque, the Bal de Tete, where he sees Rachel, and he's, war, you know, he's like, who is Rachel? She's old, and then Bloch says, oh, whispers in here, oh, it's Rachel, and he realizes Rachel. Um, he says, uh, in, in, in Temps Retrouvé, where he again thinks about what it is to tell the story of a life, it isn't just to tell the story, but it's to have an insight, an impression of that life. He says, quote, in fact, what individuals we have known, what individuals have we known who, if we want to tell the story of our friendship with them, and it's important that it's friendship, do not oblige us to set them successively in a series of quite different places in our lives. A life of Saint Lou, as portrayed by me, would unfold in every sort of setting and involve the whole of my life, even those parts of it where he was least familiar, like my grandmother or like Albertine. Um, and the Verdurin, even though at the opposite end of the scale were connected to Odette through her past and to Robert de Saint-Loup through Charlie. And think of the part played in their house by Venteuil's music. Finally, Swann had been in love with Le Grandin's sister, who in turn had known Monsieur de Charlus, whose ward the young Cambreneur had married, if it were only a matter of our hearts, the poet would have been right to speak of the mysterious threads that are broken by life. But it is even more true to say that life is ceaselessly weaving these threads between individuals and between events, that it interweaves them, doubles them, to make the weave thicker, such that in extent, finally, that between the least significant point in our past and all the others, a rich network of memories gives us, in fact, a choice about which connection to make." End of quote. And here I'll just end by saying two things. One is, what's striking here is the metaphor of weaving, of stitching, which is then played out in the descriptions a few pages later, where Marcel is talking about he's going to start to write, and how Françoise is the only one who really understands what he's up to because she's a seamstress. And how Françoise calls his writings manuscribbles. Um, he says, quote, as if every few moments I changed the comparison by which I could best and most materially represent the task on which I was embarking, I thought that at my big deal table, watched by Françoise, who in the way that all pretentious people who live alongside us do, had intuitive understanding of my task. For, I'll skip a few sentences, pinning a supplementary page in place here and there, I should construct my book. I don't say... I don't dare say ambitiously as if it were a cathedral, so it's not a cathedral, <clears throat> but simply as if it were a dress I was making, 
When I did not have all of what Francoise called my manuscripts within reach and could not find just the one I wanted, Francoise would sympathize with my annoyance, and she always used to be saying how she could not sew if she did not have the right number of thread and proper buttons. And then through being so close to my life, she had developed a kind of instinctive understanding of literary works more accurate than that of many intelligent people, let alone fools. So I think that the art of crafting is the art of making clothing. And that scene where he recognizes the singular essence of Robert is precisely one in which he says, all I see is this vitalized garment that's moving, almost a ghost. And so the project of the writer will be to write the tapestry of a life that has the capacity to express the singular essence of that life. And I'll end it with that. Thank you.